Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. I'm speaking like this once again because I insist on testing my body's limits by recording way late into the night and continuing to edit into the morning. Nonetheless, this is a conversation with Amy Chiaretto. So Amy was a, a twofer at Roadrunner Records, if you want to call it that. She has spent some of her career in radio and some of it in PR in that last stretch in the 21st century from 2000 all the way up to uh, 2012, 2013. We get into it. We get into it. So in terms of a little bit of housekeeping, about an hour in, two things happen. First thing, I start speaking a bit quicker. Now, if you're akin to the Yorkshire dialect, this isn't much of an issue. But for the American listeners, this might become a problem. That's down to my own fatigue, of which you're still hearing right now. But, you know, bear with me on that one. Second thing is uh, there's a dog snoring in the background for the audio listeners. It's not me. It's a dog. It's Amy's dog. It's all fine. Anyway, Amy's really helped me out in this one. This is a, I, I really like, enjoyed this conversation because it's it's departing from the nucleus of Roadrunner. It's departing from the case in Monty Show and we're moving it more into different territories and different functionalities of the business. It's not necessarily the back office functionality. It's, it's how Roadrunner is filtered and sort of presented out into the world. And there's all kinds of interesting things which Amy sort of led me on to, which I've been meditating on for the past few days. I can't wait to sort of extrapolate and explore further. It's another adrenaline shot into the body of this project. Let's see how many more I can sustain. One, two, fuck it up. Welcome to the Roadrunner History Research Vehicle, which is just <laughs> as a podcast and all this good stuff. Um, awesome, uh, it's an awesome uh, vehicle, vessel, um, document, audio document, I guess. Yeah, well, someone had to fucking do it because I was sick of waiting. So, <laughs> and we're a hundred hours in, but I'm, I, I'm I interested. Yeah, I'm interested to speak to you because I think your role in the company, what was having a sort of a two tiered role, which was obviously radio and then moving into PR, mm-hmm. it's firmly, it's almost independent. There's like when you sit like talking about Roadrunner, there's the Case and Monty show where they're the nucleus of everything. And then there's other arms of the business, especially as you enter the 2000s and it sort of grows into this massive thing. Things that act kind of independently, a lot more independently. So I'm, it, it's interesting to me to try and break away from the case of Monty Show and start talking about these different minds that are going to start pushing the label into you know, what it ended up doing and the, the profile it ended up having. But I, I thought I, we should open up with the, the typical, how were you recruited by Doug and Jonas and whatnot? Um, well, the story is interesting. Um, and just to mention what you just spoke about, the 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 people who were not the case Jonases and Montes of Roadrunner, they always referred to us all as the young Turks because we were the front line that was in the shit doing, you know, <laughs> in, get, rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty. And we used to have meetings and they called them the young Turk meetings because, you know, we were the ones who lived it. And Monty kind of even led that because Monty lived and loved metal as much as all the rest of us did. But um, my story with Roadrunner is is a unique one because um, I was working at CMJ, which was a college radio trade magazine. I was the loud rock editor. It was the best job I could have ever wanted out of college. I got to write about metal all day, talk to metal radio stations all day about what they were playing. And I got to talk to record promoters all day. I would talk to Janet Roadrunner. I would talk to, um, you know, Joey Severance at Metal Blade. I would talk to everybody who did those jobs at other labels because I was like the center, like the central, like the nerve center of those metal radio charts. 
And there was hundreds of stations at that time, college, commercial. And when I was at CMJ, you know, I was going to shows every night and I was always interviewing Roadrunner bands. And I was also a freelance writer. I also wrote for Spin. I wrote for um, uh, VH1. I wrote for Teen People. I wrote for Revolver, Kerrang, uh, Outburn, all these magazines. So I was always very tight also with the press department at Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. And when Sophie Diamantes was leaving Roadrunner, they, um, no, it wasn't Sophie. Sorry. Um, I forget how, well, Jamie Roberts and Sophie were uh, the PR department. I think then Sophie left and then Maria came in and I, I was actually, now I remember, I was at a glass jaw show, I believe it was at Brownies. And I was talking to Jamie Roberts, the publicist, and she said, hey, do you know anybody who might be looking, I'm looking to hire like a uh, third person in the PR department? I was like, oh, would you consider me? And she was like, of course I would. Mm-hmm. And she called me the next day and said, I want you to come in for an interview. Uh, Cause I had always been really, you know, I, she knew I knew and understood the roster. So they brought me in for an interview, Maria Gonzalez, who was in the PR department, Jamie, she and I were very, um, very tight, did a lot of work together too, um, worked together very closely. And then I went and I had met with Jonas and, um, you know, I guess I impressed him. He was the president and he was like, uh, he called me from the airport, uh, with Jamie on the line and offered me a job. He was on his way traveling to LA or something and said, Hey, we want you to come work and be a part of our team. We want you to be a part of Roadrunner. And he was like, they offered me more money. Cause I initially said no. And then they offered me more money. And I thought long and hard about it. And this was, I said, no, if, if I just like, I felt like I hadn't done everything I wanted to do at CMJ yet. I remember Jonas saying, I can't believe you had the audacity and the balls to turn us down twice. <laughs> and I did. And I always look back and Jamie was bummed. I thought she was going to be real bummed with me for a while, but she wasn't, she was professional, but she was like, I really wanted you to take that job. But, um, uh, it wasn't the right time. And then a year and a half later, there was two jobs opened up, another job in the press department and a job in the radio department. And Roadrunner actually asked me to come back and interview for both. And Jonas actually asked me to come back and interview again. And I interviewed for both jobs. And I kind of was leaning towards the radio job because I was already so embedded with metal radio stations because at CMJ, they were all calling me to input their charts. So I already had relationships with them. Yeah. So... Um, I met with Dave Blanco, who was the head of radio, is one of the greatest bosses to ever exist. He was an amazing, amazing person. I learned so much from him. He was the best, most supportive boss you could ever want. And Mark Abramson interviewed me, and uh, they offered me the job. And I interviewed for the press job, and but then they offered me the radio job, and I took it. And this was in 2001. And um, uh, it was the director of hard rock promotion or manager of hard rock promotion was what I started out. And I basically was... Doing um, uh, promotion with, it didn't matter if it was a commercial station with the metal specialty show, one night a week, five nights a week. Um, if it was, if they played metal, if it was a college station, a community station, WSOU, YSP, WJJO, WZR, anything that had a metal radio show or metal radio programming, um, I, I handled it. And at that time, there was probably 700 stations in the country sure. that I was dealing with. And um, my job was to promote um, all of the metal releases to that format. And at that time, there was four trade publications. Uh, there was CMJ, two CMJ charts, one of which I created, FMQB, Radio and Records. Um, and then there was something that called Media Guides doesn't exist anymore. But it was, um, you know, it was the height of metal radio helping to break bands like Slipknot, Trivium, Kill Switch Engage, Machine Head, Devil Driver, all those bands had a place in that format. So... That was, um, you know, I started in 2001 and I was there until 2012, 2013, I think. So, yeah. So what 
what what month do you arrive? Because this is important because Silver Side Up is just about to change the whole landscape. Yeah, I started just as that, just as Silver Side Up. I think I, I think I took, I think I started in December, so it was right as that record came out and blew up. And while I was interviewing, that was like part of the courting process on that second round of interviews, where they were like, you know, we've got Nickelback, they're blowing up, things are changing for this company. It, you know, it's good to board now and come get on board now and come join us. And, and Iowa had just come out and, you know, even though supercharger was a record, I don't love that had come out. And I took the job at Roadrunner. Cause I remember when I turned the job down initially, I told Jamie, I was like, man, I don't love Cold chamber. And she was like, well, neither do I. And I was like, but you know what? She's like, but the challenge is to get people to write about it and like win them over. And that's your job. Your job is to tell the story. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And I took the job Roadrunner because I wanted to work with Slipknot, Killswitch Engage, because they had just signed and Glassjaw. They were the bands that brought me there. And then I saw how great Nickelback was doing. And I was like, wow, I can be a part of that as well. Because I also did video promotion. So that's how I was tied in with the big bands like Nickelback right. and Fear Your Dead Man, because I did the video promo for them as well, which was there was tons of late night video shows at that point. So, so um, let's move left a little bit, because yeah. one thing I think is really interesting, because you come in, you come in fucking hot when everything's about to blow up and the whole landscape is changing. Um, but when you're writing for CMJ, what's the perception of Roadrunner? Because I've got this. I've got this sort of like narrative in my head, and it's people are bound to email in and shoot me down, which is great because that's what I want. But post Bloody Kisses, Roadrunner between Bloody Kisses and and um, Silver Side Up, or maybe even the Slipknot debut, it's like this. You got the flagships doing flagship things. You got Machine Head doing Machine Head things. You got Fear Factory doing Fear Factory things. But you got all this experimentation happening underneath. Yep. So was that something? when you were writing at CMJ that you were cognizant of, or yes, was it still like the, 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 the metal label just doing non-metal things? Well, we always looked at it and we would, you know, I would do a news column as well. And I would just write about things that were happening. So I would see Fear Factory going gold off the back of cars, you know, and I would write like, look at Roadrunner, you know, Roadrunner's Fear Factory is is making some waves and, and, and grabbing a gold certification and look at this band Nickelback that they have. And going back to Nickelback, I remember when I was the, the job that I turned down in 2000, that was in 2000 that I turned down the job the first time. Mm -hmm. Um Jamie had said, we got this new band Nickelback and you can totally help build their press kit. And I was like, Nickelback, never heard of it. You know, this was on the curb really, uh, not the curb, what was it called? The first one. State. Uh, the state. Curb was the thing we re-released from the state. Sorry, I'm totally in my brain. Um, just a mush right now. But yeah, it was the state. So um, Jamie was like, you can help build their press kit. And I was like, oh, that sounded like exciting and, and interesting. But when I, I ultimately didn't take the job, but I was writing about how uh, Nickelback was helping Roadrunner be that label that could. And even though Nickelback was hard rock in some sense, I mean, Never Again is a hard rock song. You know, it's mm. a great song. I mean, uh, How You Remind Me is is a smash, a beautifully written song. That's why it did so well. You can't deny a hook or a melody. Um, but I was writing a lot about that in my metal column because I remember Jamie Roberts was like, man, you're just giving me clip after clip on Nickelback. Thank you. Because I was, she was able to use that in her pitches and her press releases because I was just always writing about how Roadrunner was becoming something and, and making waves. And you could tell that, okay, here's a label that's doing really well. It's going to allow them to sign more of the Killswitch Engages of the world and still do what, what they do. It's that kind of band that keeps the lights on. You know, it's yeah. just a simple economics. But yes. uh, I ask this sometimes, and then I usually edit it out because it feels like it's in poor taste. But nine eleven and how you remind me—is there some sort of mood matching here? Oh, I mean, like when that song was everywhere at that time, all over the radio at that time, and I 
still hear, when I hear how you remind me, I'm re- instantly transported back to how, how I felt on 9-11. You know, yeah. it was um, a day that changed the world as I knew it. And that song is the soundtrack of that time period. Even my old roommate who I lived with at the time of 9-11 always says, man, every time I hear how you remind me, it reminds me of 9-11 because it was, that song was, you know, peaking at that point. So yeah, it's definitely forever connected in my mind. And my life was changing as I was in deep discussions with Roadrunner at that time and making a big change after the world just changed. So Roadrunner is very, for me, closely tied into 9-11 because I made a huge change in my life by changing and taking a job that I worked most of where I worked most of my formative years of my adult life and became mm-hmm. the adult that I am by working there and also an event that changed history. So, yeah, um, I mean, it's worth knowing when I asked that question, and obviously for the younger people who might be listening, probably not, it was like that it was a cultural phenomenon in itself in a media sense because 9-11, like it was, it dominated the general news cycle for the next 18 months. And that was such a big fucking deal. Now, I'm, I, I, can't, I can't phrase this as, it's no coincidence that the higher mind resonated. It's something about the melancholy and it's something about, I don't know, maybe it's because it was a hard rock song. And it's a kind of a, even though it's hard rock in a very conventional sense, it still has an outlier aesthetic to it. And people resonate with that and with what was going on at the time. It was just weirdly, really well matched. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a link that goes nowhere for me yep. but it feels like it's, it's such a strange and unique like, like that will probably never happen again in history that is worth that. sort of like yeah no i will that song is forever and so is iowa because you know it's forever um uh linked to that moment in time because of when it came out i mean same thing can be said about system of down you know because yeah, that record came out with the same time slayer god hates us all um you know those all records are celebrating their 20th anniversaries this year so it's uh, it definitely can i mean I can hear those and I can remember how hot it was on that day. So yeah, it's definitely irrevocably um, linked. Can you tell me a little bit more about Dave Lonko on the basis that from my understanding from the Mark conversation, he was brought in from, I believe as a major, it might've been mm, RCA records. Right. It was RCA. Okay. Um, Because there needed to be some sort of accessible credibility. I think, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right word, but I think Case was looking to get a heavy hitter from yep. mainstream music to come and shake things up. Is that about right? It's what it felt like to me. I mean, Dave started obviously before I did, but when I met him, he was just, it was like, he was like another dad to me. He was just, um, you know, a guy who came from RCA, a major label working bands like Dave Matthews, you know, who's been around a really long time yeah. and was iconic and legendary. I mean, he used to tell us all the time in our radio meetings, he's like, you guys have to really work records. You guys got to get creative. He's like, all I had to do was, you know, I just had to, you know, show up and, um, you know, party with the programmers. Um, <laughs> you know, we had to actually go and do work and, and really work hard to pitch these people and pitch them on these artists because, you know, we didn't have pop artists. We had rock artists. And um, Dave, I believe Case, you know, wanted, you know, to take that next level. And when you see something like Nickelback breaking the way that it was and seeing how many records they were selling every week, we used to get a little sound scan printout. We're like, wow, Nickelback's still selling like 40,000 records every week. And you want to see that with every band you work with. It made me motivated to go, man, I want to see Killswitch sell like 10,000 every week like that. Let's like Trivium, let's get Slipknot on that same level. Like it motivates you for sure. You want every artist you work with to be breaking like that. So um, Dave Blanco was definitely, 
one of the reasons I took the job, him and Mark were very persuasive. Like they seemed like they were an amazing team and they were, and, you know, Dave was the kind of boss that had your back. Um, you know, I remember I leaked an Opeth song, um, when Opeth signed to Roadrunner and they were one of my favorite bands and, uh, I leaked it on Sirius and I wasn't supposed to, I told Dave, I was just going to play a little bit. And me and Jose just at Sirius, um, when it was called heart attack for his little metal, we were like, let's just play the whole song. And then we played two songs. That wasn't what I got permission to do. And like managers and product managers were not happy. And, and, and Dave called me to his office and was like, next time you play two songs, tell me before you do it or tell me after you do it. And he goes, don't worry, I got your back. And I'm, there are people who are unhappy because I leaked the song early and, and it, it, it messed up other people's promo plans. And Dave was like, um, people heard the song all over the world and all over the country. That's promotion. That's what we do. Don't give her a hard time. She just did what her job is. And he had my back and I'm sure I could have been fired for that. And Dave had my back and was like, next time, give me a heads up. And then he went and fought and said, do not give my staff a hard time for going out there and promoting our bands. He goes, that was promotion 101 right there. So I think he this was is the thing. an amazing human. This is the thing about the label, which we like, yeah, there's great bands. Yeah. There's, there's innovation in, in the music. And, but the, it's interesting how I wanted to talk about that, this independent sort of like arm of the business operating on its own terms yeah. away from the case and Monty story. But the case and Monty story is a story of leadership. Of course. And you've got the same thing happening in this, in this different operation, which is so cool. Yeah, there was, um, you know, there was pockets of all that at Roadrunner. You know, there was people like um, when I started, you know, uh, some of the bands that I was working with were not the super heavy bands. It was bands like Il Nino and Spineshank mm -hmm. who had a little bit of crossover appeal and were still heavy. Um, and cross, but they were also working to cross them over and they were having some success there and they were going to radio with those. And me and, um, one of my coworkers, Veronica Viato, she was, um, touring in artist development and she and I were always like, man, why can't we have more bands like in flames and Mastodon? And we were like, you know, we really want, like, why can't we sign bands like those too? And, um, you know, they used to say we were like the Patty and Selma, um, of, of Roadrunner because <laughs> we were like, we always want more metal. And then we were like, no, we're more like Statler Waldorf from the Muppets because we were just always like the grumpy metal chicks because we just, you know, um, you know, we loved all the bands we worked with and we worked our butts off for them, but we would always be like, hey, can we add these heavier bands to the roster too? And then, um, you know, because Roadrunner had phases where we went up and down with what, what they were signing. You know, they were trying to keep the Nickelback wave going with more commercial bands, and but without like not trying to sign 18 Nickelback look, uh, sound alikes. They were trying to take some heavier bands and get like some more commercial songs out of them. And sometimes mm -hmm. it worked, and sometimes it didn't. I think that's a good, it leads into this, this question I had, which was, what this is maybe a British ignorance thing, but what's active rock in this sense? What's active rock is because it feels like that's the that's the the platform you want a band to transition to. Sure, I feel like active rock is like this is now a mainstream item. A active rock is it's a radio format. You know, it's it's um, not heavy metal uh, and it's not pop. It's just harder rock. Um, you know, uh, it keep it evolves on what it means. You know, I mean, some people consider can you know five finger death punches active rock and you know um foo fighters in some worlds can be considered active rock and some worlds is considered classic rock at this point um i'm trying to think what else like it's it's active rock is like it's heavy but it's still got it still can appeal to the mainstream and the masses you right. know Chabelle, active rock stuff like that it's like um you know kill switch engage gets worked to active rock it's just a it's um 
I think it's just a term to try to say things that are heavy and, but just not heavy metal, you know, hard, but not as hard. Uh, heavy but accessible. Song. Yeah. Accessible heavy metal. The song that, that doesn't have all the screaming. That's how I look at it. <laughs> There's still some super heavy stuff at Active Rock Architects, stuff like that, you know, today. Yeah. But it's, it's constantly evolving. Like whatever was alternative in like 2005, like Fall Out Boy is not considered alternative now. It's, it's the, the radio formats are always constantly evolving. It's similar to, it speaks to the oversaturation of everything, really. Yep. Which, that's, you know, is it, that's, that's, that's a different documentary project, I yes. think. <laughs> so is your role in radio then? Is is your is there a threshold you need to pass before you go, my job here is done? So like, let's say Killswitch enter into the active rock capacity. Now is now it's like, okay, we are now in a, a safe space that whenever there's an album cycle, we can just hit certain beats and we'll probably generate some success. Or well, is it... No, Roadrunner was the best thing that the Roadrunner radio department was always very cognizant of and that we we worked to make sure of this was that when we had, you know, Killswitch Engage started at Metal Radio. They didn't they didn't get an active rock campaign until the end of Heartache. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Live or Just Breathing was just touring and 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 Metal Radio and the press that supported them and just rebuilding after jesse left and howard came in and i was actually the only person at roadrunner that had seen howard's first show with kill switch at hellfest and i remember when i came back everybody's like how was it and i was like oh it was amazing they're like you're too biased you're friends with the band and you love the band i'm like i'm not biased and look what happened what happens with jones they go on and they have an amazing amazing run with him and and jesse who i adore you know what i mean he still made my favorite album with them which is alive just breathing which also came out on my birthday um but (laughs) And I'll always be, you know, linked with that. But Roadrunner, the beautiful thing that our department, when I was in the radio department, what we did, and this was Dave and Mark understanding this, and Mark very coming from, Mark did the job before I did, you know, so that was his roots. So he always was going to look out for it. And Dave understanding the place that he came to work was that Kill Switch Engage on a live or just breathing. Yeah, we're going to event, not a live or just breathing, end of heartache. We're going to get a, a commercial radio campaign, but we are always going to serve, super serve the metal core first, the metal radio stations, the metal supporters. Same thing with Slipknot. You know, I worked Iowa and it it was a, he- it's a heavy record. And we still had to make sure that all the metal stations were covered with interviews, anything they wanted, giveaways, access to the band, tickets to the shows. And when volume three, the subliminal verses came out, it was always, we got to give metal radio the heavy song first. Metal radio gets it first. We never would ever forget that format because it supported those. They owned it. They took ownership of it and they helped break these bands and they helped get these bands, those active rock campaigns. And that's what I loved about seeing my department do by saying, well, we're not going to, we're not going to ignore that. We have to. We have to make sure that those people are taken care of, that those listeners, that those programmers, that those DJs are taken care of. That is why Slipknot would still do interviews with 89.5 FM, WSOU. It, the, the, it was that station was quintessential because you have the New York marketplace and the metal fans are listening. And that's where mm. you want to grab them. You got to be on WSOU. So we, you know, I had to drive Corey Taylor to WSOU many times, you know. So um, we never forgot that. None of the, you know, it was... Um, those stations were important. I can't tell you how many times I, you know, uh, I would have to drive bands up to like WAF in, in Boston for their metal show um, to make sure that they felt that they were taken care of and that they had all the access that they wanted to these bands because they were essential to helping break them and helping us sell records. Would 
because uh, obviously in, in this world, it's like a universal world now, isn't it? Because they're the, they're the big daddies um, owning the wall. 50, 49%, 50% exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Did they take issue with that approach? Because I'm sure they would want to go, no, 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 you want to go for the biggest stations. Forget the metal stations. Uh, I, I mean... Uh, or would they like, fuck them, it doesn't matter. I, no, I didn't get that at all. When I was working there, there was no pushback on that. I feel like they, I think they looked at Roadrunner and said, you guys know what you're doing. Go do it. You know, yeah. I mean, I look at the end of heartache um you know that was a record that came out the first week and sold forty thousand copies based on the efforts of the people on the front line metal radio and press and and digital and touring mm -hmm. that's how Killswitch engaged they told us they're not getting a, a commercial radio campaign until you guys get this record to a certain amount of records sold we have to we have to show them something's going on with this band and that was like to me. All right, let's get there. If we got to get to hundred, you want us to sell hundred fifty? Let's get to one hundred seventy-five thousand. Like, let's do it for this band, and um, and all our bands. We felt like that. So I think um, we were uh, the fact that these positions existed. That I, you know, I had pressure on me. You got to get, you got to get more spins. You got to get the everything's got to go number one. Everything has to be number one. If you got, you know, I worked um, volume three and uh, a library. Um, sorry, the end of heartache at the same time. And I remember Dave Blanco saying to me. Just keep switching them back, number one, each week, every other week. Because they were out at the same time. And he's like, right. just put the pegs in. Make sure Slipknot goes number one and make sure Kill Switch goes number one. I don't care how you do it. Get it done. I'd be like, oh, okay, I got it done. Uh, but it did. We got it done. You know, how to keep everybody happy. And and those were two, um, uh, two of the most important albums that we released in that year and at that time mm. period. Yeah, no shit. I'm fucking beast. Great year for releases. Also, um, that was um, the same year that uh, a record that I hated when I worked it and hated when it came out. And I now I look at it as one of my top five favorite releases that Road on Ever put out, which was 36 Crazy Fists, Snow Cap Romance. Right. Um, a total sleeper hit. Like nobody that that record is 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 one of the greatest things that roadrunner ever put out and is a completely slept on forgotten about gem. So I always tell people and I didn't like it. And I remember Mike D from Killswitch was like, how do you not like a snow cap romance I'm like i hate that record it's horrible i don't like the da, 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 da. and he was like this sounds like everything you like go back and listen to it and then go see them live and he goes and come back to me and tell me how much you love it and he was right you know because it was like why didn't i like that record everybody ever was like how do you not love this and it grew on me over time and now it's it's a top five for me i love when that happens i'm gonna start asking people what their favorite roadrunner release is because mark's it, mark thinks it's x order Really? Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. he was talking about how Kathy wouldn't touch that or DSI. And it's funny hearing Kathy, who I Kathy was always like the roadrunner mom to me, you know, because when I first started, she was always super warm to me. And she, you know, just being that, you know, she's a little older than I am. She was always like the big sister. And I'm just like, I can't ever picture Kathy working DSI or Kathy working these like extreme metal records because <laughs> she's Kathy, the awesome, like big sis, you know, that you think that you're like the, the heavy metal rebel, you know, but mm. she was you know, she's she was she's a legend in in Roadrunner lore in my in, in my mind. Yeah, she's one of the lifers. Yeah, yeah, she definitely. Yeah, um, what I was gonna say, what I was gonna say, something. Sorry if I keep tedious. going off. No, no, I know, I love it, I love it because, as I say, I'm coming in kind of blind into this world, so I'm 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 coming in with a yeah. giant fuck off ice cream scoop to get as much information out of you as possible. So if you go off on a rant, then I, that's what I want. Um, give it. So what was your first assignment then? Late 2001. It must have been. Uh, early, I said, yeah, because I remember like I started and then early, I really do dove in, in in January. But my first, some of the first records I worked um, was Fear Factory. I always explain it to people. My era of Roadrunner was when 
the the some of the cores like Fear Factory, Sepultura, Typo, uh, they were all in their like last album or cycling out. Fear Factory broke up on the Digimortal record, and that yeah. was the record that I came in on. And I still remember getting the email from Monty to the staff saying, "Hey, Fear Factory broke up." <laughs> and we were, I was like, "Oh my god, wow!" I'm getting this inside information um, as a staffer now. And um, uh, I had worked. Um, some new bands like uh 5.0 which really great record it was it was probably a little misunderstood at the time mm-hmm. and 36 crazy fists first release and then cold chambers dark days um i also kill switch alive or just breathing you know that was the reason i went to work there glass jaw was like touring so i was working on touring for them and then they had the big blowouts that they had with roadrunner and that bummed me out because i loved them so much and they were one of the reasons i went to work there and slipknot iowa yeah. So those were like the records I, I came in on. Um, and my era was where those Fear Factories and uh, Sepultores and Typos were kind of cycling out on their last album. But but bands like Slipknot and, and Trivium, Tri- Trivium, Devil Driver, Chimera, all those bands were coming in on their records. So, yeah. um, you know, that new wave of American heavy metal, as we used to call it, was like the golden era that I got to work there. Right. You know? I got Lesson. to work. That's gonna- what it was. Yeah, 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 but let's unpack this because I, I, I argue with a mate about this all the time because I consider that stuff to be the new wave American, um, new wave American heavy metal, and I'm like, great, that's like a little, that's a little ribbon I can be nostalgic about, and I can sort of put them all in that box. But some people refer to that as metalcore, which we did at the time, but now yeah. that's evolved into this tech metal beast. Do you right. still re- regard that stuff as new wave of uh, American metal? It's different because I wouldn't call Killswitch metalcore. You know what I mean? But I can see why some people might. Chimera, I wouldn't really call them metalcore either. I wouldn't call Trivium metalcore. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have metalcore bands like the Agony Scene and Still Remains and stuff like that at that time. But I, I would say it was New Wave American of American Metal because it was at the time when Shadows Fall and Lamb of God and Killswitch were like exploding. Yeah. And I always say out of that, you know, out of that, group Killswitch was the only one that could tour with taste of chaos which was under oath in my chemical romance and and use and then they could go back out with slayer and mastodon and mm. then they could go sell out the roseland within flames and then they could go on Ozfest, and then they could go on tour with slipknot and then they could go on warp tour that's kill switch was to me and i still work with them to this day um you know uh we're lifers together and i don't you know i think that the only way we'll part is if they break up or i die but um <laughs> you know they were the one band that you could look at that showed what roadrunner could really do and did in the metal space we just yeah. knew what to do with a band like that you know and it was um just the right time for them but i don't look at them as metalcore you know um they were coming up, you know, the metalcore bands, I, I feel like what, what I look at as metalcore started a little bit later, maybe in the late OOs and mm-hmm. early oddies, I guess they're calling them. Uh, bands like Divorce Prada, um, you know, all those, We Came as Romans. I feel like that's when it really became metalcore. You know, because I remember one time I said to Tr- Matt from Trivium, I was like, I like the breakdown of that one song. And they were like, we don't have breakdowns. I'm like, yes, you do. But it's not like a moshy breakdown. Yeah. It's just like a guitar breakdown. You know, I remember him and Corey were like, whoa, we don't have breakdowns. It was just funny, like a funny, just to ha- see people like react to how you're reacting to their music. But um, I-, I would say that those bands were, I- we called it the new wave of American metal because that's what it was. There were some bands that were thrashier, like God forbid, and some bands that were like more like classic metal and metallica like shadows fall mm-hmm. but whereas Killswitch had those big power melodies and adam and the, and howard with the vocal harmonies and and the guitar you know um wizardry that they were doing so um i definitely think that roadrunner didn't sign all bands that sound alike it was like we had you know a bit of a 
you know, a little bit more of like an industrial sounding band with Chimera because they had like a lot of the sampling. And then we had something like El Nino, which had the Latin flavor to it. Yes. And then we had Devil Driver, which was super heavy and Dez uh-huh. reinventing himself. And then you have Machine Head um, who came off of a record that people didn't like, Supercharger, and then came back with Through the Ashes of Empires, which I felt was top notch, and then came back even stronger with The Blackening, which is one of the best things that I texted Rockland the other day. I was like, dude, what's this, 14 years? And this still has aged perfectly for me. I said, it still sounds as vital as it did the day I heard it at the Christmas party. Um, yep. Monty played it for me in his office. And those were some pinnacle releases that came out on that with that label on it in the OOs. I mean, I don't think we could have been touched. We were selling records. We were putting out some of the best shit. And it was like we wanted to win. And we had and I tell people all the time it's the best work family I've ever had. The best people, uh the best, just the best ideas coming out. And yeah, sometimes we fuck shit up and we might not have done sorry, am I allowed to curse? Absolutely. <laughs> um I'll you word gets bleeps and that's it. Um but we, you know, there was you know, look at I, I just look at some of the uh, bands that I'm blessed to have worked with from Gojira to Kill Switch mm. to Slipknot to everything that we've had. We had, I worked with Meatloaf, I mean, at one point. So Rogan I was, fucking love that album. Uh, that, I mean, that was I fucking some love of the most it. Fun, most, some of the most fun I ever had with an artist out, out and about on a press day was with Meatloaf. Um, he was amazing, amazing, amazing to work with. But, um, you know, there was sometimes we would be like, what are, you know, we would get confused by certain things. But I mean, we, the core of what we had and no pun intended there was, you know, we, I feel like we really truly had the best of, of what was, what was out there. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, there was some real, I mean, trivium, you know, that was something that Monty, I feel like really felt like a Renaissance for him of, of, of finding, you know, and look at them. There's still, I still work with trivium as well. And, you know, Matt Hapey has really established himself as, you know, uh, a legitimate uh, presence and, and Rob Flynn, uh, some of my best memories of hanging out with when the band were always with him and Rob Flynn. I remember I would say to him, I mean, I hear an opening riff of yours and I know it's you. You're that signature that I can hear it and go, that's Rob Flynn. That's how, you know, with, with Roadrunner United, I remember Monty telling me, oh, Rob Flynn takes forever to write songs. He's going to make Roadrunner United be really slow because he takes forever to write songs. And, um, you know, Rob Flynn is just so specific about that stuff. But, you know, I mean, they put out two back-to-back untouchable records. That period... I I feel like we were we were putting out some of the best stuff to define the genre at that time. Yeah, and I completely agree. And that's my era. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about Roadrunner United. So how was that to oh, promote? Hang on, were you were you on in PR at that point? Are you still radio? I was in radio still at that point. So um, that was um, God. I can't believe that that. What, I mean, how many years is that? Like 15, Sixteen, man. At this point. Oh my God. That was some of the, uh, <laughs> the party was, uh, one of the wildest things I have ever experienced and wrote on United. Um, it was something that I feel like it showed that there was, you know, Monty's idea of let's have these team captains and, um, you know, let's connect all of our artists who are, I can't tell you how easy my job was a lot of the times because all of our bands were touring together. So they were all friends. We were all working together. We all see each other. We all knew. So having them all work together to, to work on these songs seemed like it would be an easier undertaking than it was. And I'm, sh- you know, I know that it was a very difficult thing to make happen, but it was, you know, a, a, a moment in time. I mean, uh, I remember we had, 
a performance at Fuse uh, of the 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 song with Daryl from Glassjaw, uh, Joey Joey Jordison. Um, uh, no way out. Called yeah, that one. I remember we did a performance at Fuse, and that was amazing. And then we had the big party, and then we had. I remember Rob Flynn telling me a story about because the song that the dagger that Howard Jones sang on, and I remember I was like, "How was it working with Jones?" You know, and he was like, "Well, you know, he flew out." And came to the studio and didn't have any lyrics. And Rob Flynn was like, oh, my God, I'm freaking out. He doesn't have any lyrics. What are we going to do? And Flynn, and um, Jones was like, dude, it's going to be fine. I promise. And then he just, like, came up with the lyrics easily. And it just I just remember that being really funny because knowing those two guys, I was like, God, I wish I could have been there when that happened just to see how that went down with those two creative minds. But and I just remember Monty telling me, oh, Rob Flynn really takes a long time to write his songs. You know, Monty would know this. Because he made Machine Head records. And I remember at first some people might have thought Matt Hafey was very young and new to the label, but wrote amazing songs for it and brought and had heavy artists from heavy eras and legacy eras of Roadrunner on his songs. You know, it showed yeah. him paying respect to the history. Um, and now at this point, Matt Hafey is is a legacy artist for Roadrunner and as well as he should be. It's so, it's a, ca- a weird case study, isn't it? Because it's such there's such nuance in every song and every how each one is mobilized and the decision making that went into every single one. I also think the dagger should be that like part of the machine head set. It should be like the fucking opening track. It's a great song. One of the great songs. No way out. I love that song because I love Daryl from Glass Show. There was just, that was, that release was really special because it was a lot of people that I loved and cared about and and was fans of all working together. What were the sales expectations on that one? It was, we were very, we didn't know because we were just like, is this like, I know personally, I was like, is this something that's just so insular? Like is Roadrunner something that we really, you know, think it is. Yeah. But I remember looking back when I was in college, like I would buy anything that was on victory because I loved earth crisis and snap case and hate mm-hmm. Parade and all the bands that were on, um, that were on victory. And if it had a victory logo on it, I probably would have bought it just because of that, because they never really disappointed me nine times out of 10. I loved what they were putting out. And I, I learned later, you know, because when I, I was a big fan of a lot of stuff that came out in Roadrunner at that time, two visions of Vision of Disorder, uh, Both Worlds, yeah. Shelter, stuff like Madball. That was an era, I even like Black Chain Jack, you know, so, um, which are some of these kind of forgotten Roadrunner releases. Yeah. Um, so I felt like, you know, is Roadrunner, this brand, something that maybe we all think because we work here, but it wasn't. I mean, we had the show. It was a pretty big event. You know, we promoted the hell out of it, you know, and um, I think we just didn't know what it was going to do. We just kind of like, I, I felt like it was like, we kind of just wanted to maybe wait and see. Yeah. Um, you know, I just remember thinking like, wow, like, is it going to, like, it was hard to translate because you got to explain this to these 14 captains and the, these guys are working with this guys in this band. So it was definitely a complicated concept. But people who were metal fans and people who were fans of what the label were doing, they got what, they, I think they got what we were doing. Yeah, it certainly stands the test of time. That's for fucking sure. Because people still really, really love that record. You know, it's, yep, it's, no. it may, and you know what? We are only nine years away. Oh my God. Are you going to scare me with something here? Like nine years from how, 30 years of Roadrunner or more than that? 50. 50. Oh, my God. See, I'm just trying to mentally block that you out. You know what? I actually I found the exact date that Roadrunner, Roadrunner was formed. The exact it date. It's the, it's actually it's, uh, February 27th, 1981. 1981. Wow. So the 25 years is, it, you know, you move a little bit left to right and... God. It's around about 25 years is when Roderick came out, but you think yeah. it was 
baby back then, you know, and it was like, gosh, you look back now and you're like, that period was so, um, you know, I, I, sometimes I, I didn't think, I don't think we realized what we were doing, you know, maybe, maybe we look back and we're like, I, like I appreciated 36 crazy fists after the fact, you know, maybe there's other people who felt that too. I don't know, but I look back now and I'm just like, wow, it was a special place. You know, it was, it, it's got, it had a lot of categorized eras and compartmentalized eras. I feel like, you know, there was the death metal era and then it was like into the, into the, you know, um, crossover era with the fear factory typo negative and Sepultura. And those were really important years of Roadrunner and then getting into the Nickelback era. And then they did sign commercial bands that they were, you know, that were radio bands. And, but I still feel that they weren't Nickelback clones. I mean, Blackstone Cherry was certainly, no way. they're a Southern rock band, you know, you know, and then you had um, something like theory of a dead man who did have a connection with Chad Kroger, but they're still going and their songs, they write catchy as fuck shit. You know what I mean? Their stuff still sticks in your head and they're totally different personality wise. And, and that was another band that was like fun to work because we worked our butts off for years to get them to platinum status. And it was rewarding. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, oh my God, we like when we started out with them, we just didn't know what we had. And then we just, you know, we, 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 we worked it and worked like a billion singles until it went platinum and, and, and we got there. Was it speaking again about new wave American uh, metal? Was Roadrunner a bit late to the pie because Killswitch were on Ferret before Roadrunner? Trivium were on Life Force before Ascendancy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Chimera was straight off the bat, I think. Well, they were on a small, like, what the hell was it, East Coast Empire or something, something like that, that yeah. Chimera was on? Um, well, I mean, that happens often these days, you know, uh, and even after um, Roadrunner was doing that. I mean, Bullet mm. for My Valentine was on Trust Kill, and then they were on yeah. you know, Sony Label, and same thing with, like, Funeral for a Friend, stuff like that. Um, you know, Kill Switch was on ferret but carl severson who ran ferret worked at roadrunner he was a digital guy yes and you know that's it was not uncommon to upstream something to roadrunner or to other labels um because you know look i mean poison the well started off on trust kill and then eventually ended up on atlantic so streaming that's a really interesting word upstreamed yeah upstream it you know incubate it um but a lot of times um uh, that that was common. You, we saw it a lot because these labels like Trustkill and Ferret really were on the cutting edge of a lot of that stuff. And a lot of those, um, a lot of those bands just um, kept growing and 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 getting the spotlight on them. And it helped those labels be looked at as these mm. A sources, you know. Um, and I feel like Roadrunner was like probably a label that you wanted to get on from one of those labels because it was like that next step up. It's almost like a band going from Roadrunner to a major, which you know yeah. it wasn't the case because Roadrunner felt like a major at that point. Yeah, Roadrunner definitely felt like a, a most viable mm-hmm. from like the early '90s, late '80s. You know, it's a proper mm-hmm. thing. Um, when I mean, we were talking about uh, earlier, Devlanco saying, "Okay, we're going to flip Slipknot and and and." Um, Suicide up, but weekend, weekend, week off. I might have been kill switch. I can't remember which, which one you kill mentioned. Switch Slipknot. It was kill yeah, switch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the metal yeah. radios. And Slipknot, uh, the volume three is the versus. Would there be a a strategy for baby bands? Because there's clearly a strategy for the big bands where we say let's flip it to the number ones and let's let's give the priority to the metal labels. But with baby bands, it's going to be a different thing if you're building a brand or incubating, as we've said. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, like if you look at, well, Killswitch was a baby band on Roadrunner at one point, and that was in 2002 when Alive or Just Breathing came out. Mm. They were a relatively new band. I believe they sold 4,000 records the first week out. And we were, um, uh, you know, there was the ground troops, the Young Turks were the people that were working on these projects. And we were the ones that kind of almost had to hand off the baton eventually. You know, we had to get it to a certain level to get it to another level. And we knew what our uh we knew what our our marching orders were. And yeah, it was with um a band like Killswitch and Chimera and Devil Driver and Machine Head, you know, they might not have had a song or even a radio campaign available to them at first, but we were the ones grinding and it was like, okay, mm. Let's get them on as many radio stations as we possibly can in the metal format. Let's get them, you know, if some station's going to spin them twice, let's ask them to spin it three times. Let's let's get them, you know, let's get Des doing a takeover of the radio show and hosting right. it, playing more Devil Driver tracks. We were just like, let's take what we have and let's take it to the next level and let's just get creative with the way that we promoted it. And um, there was definitely a different, you know, Camaro was never going to get a commercial radio campaign. So it was like, okay, these are your, these guys are yours. Make every possible thing that you can happen, happen with them. Exhaust every option. If there's a station out there that's kind of hesitant about playing it because it's not heavy enough. And I did like, some people used to say to me, oh, you have it easy. You work at Roadrunner. I'm like, no, 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 I don't have it easy. There are stations out there who, if it, if it has any sense of uh, of singing on it or clean singing or has any little bit of melody on it they're like this is garbage this is mainstream bullshit this is sellout i'm not playing this um so i had to battle that too because there were some stations like if it's not slayer i'm not playing it you know so you had to you know deal with some of that backlash where people going well slipknot's getting all this play on commercial radio why do i why do i need to um why do i need to play it well because there's still heavy songs on here and your listeners probably want to hear it. it's a gateway band so um, there was definitely like, but they, even when bands like Slipknot were, you know, going to that next level, going gold, going platinum, um, you know, getting Grammy nominations and getting commercial radio airplay and singles and, and, and next level late night TV, it was still like they Roadrunner never, never gave up and never said, you know, metal radio doesn't matter anymore. They, mm. it broke the bands and then they knew it and and the powers that be that's why i had a job that why my position was considered at the time a critical position there because there was a lot of bands that the only airplay they were getting was on those metal stations yeah. and it, we better get a lot of it and all the time we had just so many releases and we were able they roadrunner gave us the resources to work with them to give them copies to give away to make sure all of our bands you know Corey taylor still did metal radio interviews on on all hope is gone you know and and on uh volume volume three he was accessible to me you know he was accessible to my stations he still would meet people at osfest he would still do the meet and greets he would still talk to everybody um they did it right and they 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 gave us the tools and and Corey brennan who is the last manager knows that metal radio helped break that band and he he always made sure that that those people were supported and that's a lot of times people forget that stuff and at roadrunner it was like we they knew what the bread and butter was it's interesting because the the british experience with metal radio is non-existent there just isn't any metal radio it's not an effective force in terms of like sure. it just isn't so it's always interesting to hear like the nuances of, of how, how that world's managed in the States. I just Googled the Young Turks because I was like, I need to see if there's like a, uh -huh. the, the academic grounding of the, of the term, a member of a revolutionary party in the Ottoman Empire who carried out the revolution of 1908 and deposed the Sultan Abdul Hamid II. A young person. Yeah, a young person. 
a young person eager for a radical change to the established order. There you go. That's what they would call it, a Young Turk meeting, where we would talk about releases <laughs> and where we would talk about what we loved and bands that we were and what we wanted to do. And, you know, Case would sit there in those meetings with us and Monty, and we he would be talking about something like, Ogier, how's this ever going to be anything that's, um, you know, commercially viable? And we're like, we know this is good. We know that out of all the extreme heavy metal bands out there, that Gojira is the best that there is. And we are going to do everything we can to turn heads on it. So that was the stuff that we lived it. So we were like, we're going to go out there. We have this band that we love. We're going to just turn every head that we can on it. You know, Mm -hmm. it was something that, you know, people like Monty, you know, decades deep in the work in there was still passionate about the stuff he was signing like that, you know, and we all loved it too. So, um, but yeah, the Young Turks, we were like, the, we were just the, you know, the, the, the ground force, the, the people who were out there, you know, working on the metal bands. So at the end of the day, Roadrunner is still a business as well. So how would your performance be uh, measured? Would there be a certain, like you got X spins, which converted into roughly some sort of sale. Was there a way that could measure the output? It wasn't like an exact science or exact metrics and analytics, but it was, um, you knew it, you knew, you saw, you got airplay um, and you saw some spikes in the market. You saw some ticket sales move. So it was definitely a direct correlation. We saw that, you know, you were getting a lot of the stations that I worked with were 50,000 watt stations in major markets or in the markets that love metal, you know, whether it was, you know, Chicago or Madison, um, stuff like that. So there was a lot of, of, um, you would see it, you would, you would see it on that, you know, it wasn't, you know, um, it was just, you could see that when you your airplay correlated to things happening. Yeah, there's a clear correlation. That's the word, isn't it? Shows are being sold out. You know, people are finding out about this. Was not, you know, the internet was not social media was not what it it is today. That mm-hmm. wasn't how you found out. You know, yeah, um, you found out about shows and the bands that you love by listening to the metal radio stations and by reading about it in the magazines because you couldn't go on Twitter or Instagram and see you know an Instagram story about um, you know. Uh, who's, you know, what your favorite band's eating for lunch, you know? And, oh, and they're playing tonight, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, it was definitely a, um, that's how you learned about that stuff back yeah, then. It's just, yeah. well, it sounds so, like, way back when, but it's the truth. Social media is <laughs> a relatively new construct. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things. How did you get into PR in the end, then? Well, that was... Um, Things started to change at Roadrunner. You know, Dave Lanco was was retiring. He was leaving Roadrunner, and they were kind of shifting things at the top. Um, and uh, what year? This was two thousand and seven. All right. And uh, Jonas said to me, "We're going to move you to the press department." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> I loved working at Roadrunner, and I didn't want to leave. So they were like, "You know, we're shifting." that metal radio job and Mark was just going to oversee it and they were just shifting things and they moved me over to press. And, uh, that was fine, you know, with me because I still wanted to work with all those bands. And, um, uh, I was, uh, I loved working at the company so much that I was willing to do whatever they wanted me to do. So yeah, they just, it was some changes were coming down and, um, I think on the corporate side and, and yeah. they were like, well, we're going to keep you and put you in press. I said, okay, let's do it. What's the ethos in PR for Roadrunner then at the time? Because we've, we've there's areas like we've got Pete Steele in Playgirl. We've got Glenn Benton getting death threats for shooting squirrels. 
is there like is are there PR nightmares or is there no such thing as a PR nightmare in that regard? There's always a PR nightmare. Um, there's that's <laughs> just every day in PR dealing with things people saying or doing dumb things, and you have to fix it, which is fine. That's what the job is. But um, back then, yeah, there was. Um, uh, the, the issue of Pete Steele on the cover of Playgirl, that was, there was always a copy in the office and it was always handed down. And I remember when Jamie Roberts and PR left, she gave it to me and I kept it at my desk until I left. And then I handed it off to Susie, who was a product manager. Uh, so it was like some, everybody, one female in the office always held on to a copy of, you know, the well-endowed Peter Steele issue. Um, but um, uh, it, there was a lot of, you know, there was things, you know, that kind of got crazy and things would happen and you would just have to address it as it comes down. And, you know, back in that period, you would see bands like Killswitch Engage get on television and do a late night TV performance. You know, that doesn't really happen as much right now, but in that era that was happening Mm -hmm. and we, um, you know, just approach things. It was like, um, Slipknot was at, in a stage of their career where it was like, okay, Slipknot, it's a way of life at this point. It's, it's, it's such an important band. Um, and that has elevated the genre and has had insane sales and success. It's like, okay, now it's like, we got to tell their story in the New York times, like a legitimizing feature. So you have to look at that and go, how did this band of nine, nine metal maniacs from Iowa become this, this thing that people live for? Um, it would be stuff like that. And, or, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, sometimes TMZ calls you and says, hey, I heard this thing about one of your bands. And you're like, okay, got to try to not make sure this doesn't come out. So PR is a very, you know, I always explain to people, PR isn't really about the review and the interview. That's just one branch of the tree. PR is protecting the artist. Not doing interviews is a PR strategy. Um, you know, making sure that the press around a band is really positive or having them only talk to certain outlets or um, doing cer- a certain way of doing things is is the is how you create the story and the mystique. And, yeah. you know, it, it was there was a lot of times, especially in some not campaigns, just about, you know, making sure that, you know, that we help them put their best foot forward. You know, there's, yeah. that's a, that's a complicated machine of a lot of people and and. Um, a lot of personalities you want to just make sure that you know people are always getting the best side of all the bands that you work with you know sometimes uh there was times when somebody would say something in an interview and i'd be like i'd get asked how did you let that happen i wasn't there well you should have been there so it's like you know and it's like sometimes you just have to kind of you know it's about the spin sometimes too it's about you know somebody says or does something stupid and then you got to fix it you know? what's the what's the biggest pr nightmare you've had to endure for Rodron? and then what's the biggest pr success that you've had to elevate um, hmm, i'm trying to think biggest success um could it be yeah. Corey? Ta- what Corey taylor thinks the meme because that kind of like it, uh, it doesn't it he was i gotta think you know because there were just so many moments you know of, of doing those you know um there was just a lot of things that happened and you would you know um it was almost it's almost like there's too many to, I, I can't even try to <laughs> like drill it down. I'm just trying to think like there was tough, there's been tough moments. I mean, to me, one of the hardest things was when Paul Gray died, mm. you know, I mean, that was somebody I cared about and some, and people who I care about his bandmates lost their brother and helping them navigate. That was the hardest, the hardest moment of my career. Nothing will ever be harder. Um, it was really difficult, you know, and, um, and then the victories were always just like, you know, 
getting murder dolls on the cover of Outburn or getting Kill Switch Engage on, on a cover here or um, getting somebody who you wouldn't expect to cover these bands to cover it. And to, you know, I remember it took me months to get Opeth in the New York Post. You know, we just had, there was a writer there who actually used to work at Roadrunner, Larry Gettlin, who who liked, loved Opeth. You know, it was stuff like that or getting Dragon Force on the cover of Decibel. Stuff, you know, there was... Um, you know, I felt like everything was a victory because nothing is a given. You know, you have to mm-hmm. fight for all this stuff. Nobody calls you up and goes, I love this band. I'm just going to put it on the cover. You have to pitch it. You have to believe in it and tell the story and 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 drill it down to somebody so that they understand why you have something and you think it's awesome and that they should think it's awesome too and that they should put it on their cover or put it in the pages of their magazine or put it on their website. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of those moments. There was some I can't really talk about. Yeah, <laughs> uh, sure, sure. Um, some of them were just like difficult moments, but you know, some were, most of them were really awesome. Like, you know, uh, there there was just you, like for me, it was about knowing the artist's personality and putting them in situations that they're comfortable in. You know, yeah. if you have somebody that you know doesn't like to do a real long interview, or if you have somebody who you know can kind of go off the rails a little bit, it's best to stay on it. You know, to stay on the call and stay on the call and 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 connect it and then cut it off when it needs to be cut off when you know the artist is like hits a certain time point it's just about having that that closeness to them to know what they're comfortable with and make sure that you always help them put their best foot forward by putting them in the best possible situation how do you do that these days then in the age of oversaturation how can you expose an artist to the point where it's in front of it because our magazines don't have quite the potency as they used to no, seriously, especially the press. I mean, there's like when I was doing, started doing press, there was thousands of them. And now there's really a very, it's a premium. And it's, um, you know, just a matter of making sure that, you know, artists don't go off on a social media tangent because nothing dies on the internet. You can delete it, but probably before you even sent it, somebody screenshotted it. You know, yeah. before you tweeted it, it was already screenshotted because it's so instant. So, you know, a lot of times um, these days, a lot of my job is just making sure that that stuff isn't misinterpreted or um, put out there or, 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 you know, you always want to make sure that the artist is represented in the best possible way and um, helping them understand, don't say this, don't do that. Don't just don't put everything out there on social media. Cause sometimes you can't take it back. Mm. And that's just generally speaking, that's not just artists, that's anybody because it's out there. You have to watch what you say. Um, it's very different these days, you know, um, before it's like, you could put a statement up on social media. I didn't do this. It's a, Back then, you just you had to help them craft a statement. You had to make sure it got to the right people. You had to give an exclusive, or you had to get it just get it done right. So um, these days, everything's a little bit more immediate. But and a lot of it isn't um, like official through official channels, you know. And it's like sometimes people run with things that haven't even been fact checked, and you're like, whoa, you but that who told you that? That's not that didn't come from an official source. You can't print that. And some people yeah, yeah. don't do it. So. You know, it's like journalism isn't journalism these days. And I'm coming from a journalism background. You know, people don't fact check anything anymore. No. Hard. No, well, that's why I'm here. So everyone can (laughs) see 100 hours of fucking Red Hornet news. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Okay, so let's let's close out the Roadrunner years then. So what's, um, you say you left what, 2012, 2013? 2013, it was the beginning of 2013 or the very end of 2012. Did you leave or were you pushed? Um, I would say I didn't have a choice. My position was basically eliminated. Okay. Um, I always tell people like, I still work for Roadrunner though. Um, you know, I, I still, um, when I left, they brought me back. Um, and it's like, I never left though. Everybody there is still family to me. Mm -hmm. Those, I still work with Trivium. I still work with a ton of bands, um, 
on on the label and i love it it, it i couldn't ask is that how album split works then? is it like a subsidiary of roadrunner or is it just like no, closer no, links? No. is totally separate it's my company yeah. uh when i left roadrunner uh i always tell the story it's i always blame mike d from Killswitch for everything uh because when i left roadrunner I, I went to a Killswitch show and i told him i said hey guys i'm leaving roadrunner and they were like and mike d was like well, don't leave us. <laughs> so I said, all right. So I was like, I'll still DPR and, and, and Killswitch is my first client and they remain it to this day. And, and like I said, they, they, they're, I we're, I'm 20 years deep with those guys, <laughs> you know, that's family, that's blood at this point. And, um, you know, I stayed doing PR and then I still worked with Gojira and Machine Head and Corey Taylor at times. And so it was like, I stayed with most of the bands. Um, and then Roadrunner was like, Hey, we want you to come back and do things. And cause I was, you know, I was so embedded and I was, I was, couldn't be happier for that, you know? So it's like, I never really left. I'm just not in-house, but I do a lot of work with Roadrunner and I right. love it. Uh, and I couldn't ask for better partners. It's, you know, I still, it's my family. That company is a part of who I am, um, no matter what form it takes. So uh, it was my honor and privilege to continue to work with them. But I always tell people that I probably would still be there if, I, if it was up to me. And I always say like, Addison are separate. I love what I do. I love the bands I work with. I love what I've built with the company. Mm-hmm. But I say, you know, it's like, I have my family. It's like my family and I've got kids and I got the house and I got the husband. But it was like if Roadrunner came back to me and said, if you want to come back to work for us, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to leave my husband and cheat on him. Just go back that way. Because I always because my love for the company is, um, you know, it's just on a different level. But um, so, yeah, I still I still work with Roadrunner. I still work with Trivium. I'm six, maybe 16 years deep with Matt Hafey and Corey and those guys. Um, and uh, uh, I still work with some of the newer bands like Joyous Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I still work, um, you know, I do a lot of touring stuff with bands like Motionless and White and In This Moment and stuff like that. So, um, and I do press for them. But uh, yeah, it's like I never left, really. How does the PR strategy work with Trivium when you've got four figures who, by design, are on Twitch every day? Because, yeah, because it's like everything's, there's, I guess like, because they're all very professional in, in that regard, that they won't spill the beans on anything. Like um, in the Court of the Dragon, just like, drops there was no leaks there's no, nothing even though they were like exposed every day for three hours mm-hmm. you know it's yeah, like it's like a co- they've got that cottage industry you know it's yeah like, um you know trivium's a well-oiled machine you know i mean they i think that they get better as they get older their albums um uh, you know are always different but sound like trivium you know it's kind of like machine head like every it always sounds like machine head um i think that you know matt is so smart about everything he does from his music to to the career and 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 to the to the cottage industry that he's built on twitch mm. you know he he was using twitch when we were on a press day um years ago you know for we were on the press day it was 2016 and it was a friday night and we did and that's like the worst possible it was like august 2016 it's like the worst possible time to do a press day on a friday on, in the summer and we um we went to sirius i think and we were in Times square and we were waiting for the uber because we were going to go to rob um uh not rob frank from metal injection to yeah. do tape an episode of taste of metal with brian so the metal chef because matt is a foodie and mm-hmm. they were going to like a kind of like a cooking off you know like and we were taking the um we're waiting for an Uber in the middle of Times Square on a Friday night. And three people came up to us to, while we're waiting, me, Matt, and his wife. And um, one guy goes, Matt from Trivium, oh my God, can I get a picture with you? And I was like, oh my God, how random is that? They were in Times Square, the center of the universe on a Friday night. Boom, somebody comes up. 
five minutes later, I'm still waiting for the Uber. And he goes, oh my God, Matt from Trivium. What's up? Totally not related to the other guy that just came up to us. <laughs> Boom, gets a picture. I said, I feel like I'm with Robert De Niro or something here, like a major celebrity. And then five minutes later, somebody else came up from, it had an accent, totally not related to the other guys. Hey, it's Matt from Trivium. Hello. Like, so I was like, wow, I can't, you know, this is crazy that this is happening. Um, but it, it it showed me that I was like, wow, Matt Hafey, you know, has has really grown in, into, you know, kind of like this kind of a standalone star, you know, mm. and he always had it in him, obviously. But um, it was just interesting to me. Like, I, I always tell the story too. like a couple um, after we did that press day and we had the um, I was in the background in the videos for it because I was there coordinating everything. And. Matt, uh, uh, you know, was cooking and you'll see me in the background. And then one day I was going through my Starbucks through the drive-thru and my, the guy, you know, gives me my drink was like, I saw you in a video by my favorite band. And I was like, okay, it was probably me. Of course. I mean, of course it's going to be. <laughs> what band was it? And he goes, Matt Hafey and Trivium. And I love that he called them Matt Hafey and Trivium, even though it's Trivium. I was like, oh, that was definitely me. What was it? And he was like, oh, it was a video where Matt was cooking. I was like, you have to be a serious fan to have watched that and then recognize me of all people in it as your person that comes through Starbucks. So the kid, his name is James. He just loves everything. He's, every time I go through, he asks me, what's up with Matt? Is Matt doing this? I heard the new trivia song. I love it. So, and during the pandemic, he always wears a trivia mask. <laughs> so I a picture of him and I texted to Matt. And um, uh, because this kid was such a big fan, uh, uh, I uh, at a trivia uh, show, I think it was like a festival in North Carolina. I was backstage and I just got Matt to autograph a set list and sign it to James. He gave me... Um, like uh pick guitar picks, Matt Hafey guitar picks, and I gave mm. it to this kid. He was like, it was like I made his life. And he's wearing a slipknot shirt when I gave it to him too. I'm like, oh my God. This kid probably would think I'm the almost awesome person ever, but you know, because I've uh, from working with all of these guys for so long. But um, you know, it was a job that I wouldn't change I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. The way you were feeling about Roadrunner around Rooney United, like, is this an insular thing that we all appreciate because we're here, or is this like a wider thing? That's how I feel about trivia. It's like, do I think it's a really special thing because I was there in 2005? Right. Or is it actually like this huge global phenomenon? And I feel, I don't even think I've got an answer for it because as you say, it is like a cottage industry. Uh, who, Trivium? You mean like the, like, or Roadrunner? Uh, with Trivium, with Trivium. No, I, th no, I think my, um, seeing people come up to Matt Hafey three times in a 10, 15 minute span in Times Square on a Friday night was showing me that I was like, this is bigger than I even realized it is. And I already <laughs> So, um, you know, uh, I, I just seeing that I was like, wow, like here's Matt, you know, Matt, he stands out. He's tall. He's got his tattoos. He's, he's got a unique look. So, but still it was just like, wow, everybody's, you know, kind of stopping him. And then just to have like my Starbucks barista be that, that big of a fan. It's like, you know, Trivium really built it legitimately brick by brick. Trivium were a baby band at one point that started out at metal radio. And that was one where it was like, got to get this one. Number one, got to get this everywhere. Got to get this on serious. Got to have a performance. Got to do this. So uh, it was just building it brick by brick. That's how we did it with these bands. And it was a formula that definitely worked and it helped create career, career artists. Yeah. You know, I always like, Another uh, story I always used to tell when I was doing radio, um, a lot of times, um, you know, we had a lot of regionals throughout the country that covered chunks of the country. And a lot of times, um, you know, they had kids or they had one of their weekends and they would be like, hey, Dave, can uh, can we send Amy out to cover the meet and greets and cover OzFest this weekend? And they would be like, do you want to go out and cover OzFest in like Detroit and Chicago and Wisconsin? And I would be like, 
fuck yes of course <laughs> i was like 23 24 and then i would have to go and work the whole time i'd be doing the slipknot meet and greets dealing with zach wild i loved it i was like uh, how could i not love that i said to take care of all that stuff it was the greatest job in the world i wouldn't change that for anything like i get to go out to the middle of the country see these radio guys that i work with and take care of all these bands sign me up you know i will ne <laughs> I, i'll never never be a better job than doing that kind of stuff and it in roadrunner like i said they gave you the power to do that stuff they gave you the tools to go get your shit done yeah so yeah, yeah. i'm trying to th i'm trying to think how i can extrapolate that any further i don't think you can i think it's like i think you said it in interviews before and, and i can relate to this under my current circumstances it ain't a job it's a lifestyle it is it it is it's very very true it's it, it i always say that it was never a job to me it was you know the music business is not a job it's it, it's it's a lifestyle you know it's because you know i'm getting you know i if something's going wrong at ozfest in la on a saturday and i'm at the movies and i'm getting a text i gotta step outside and go answer and deal with it and that happened many 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 times over the years and um, I didn't mind because I just loved the job so much. Mo I always say most of my friends that I went to college with, you know, they hate their jobs and they're like, man, I must have looked at my watch and looked at the clock a hundred times today and I can't wait till happy hour so I can go just blow off steam because I hate my job. I've never felt that. Yeah, you get frustrated, but you know, it's anybody with any job, but I never felt that where I was like, oh my God, I was always like, I am so blessed and lucky and, and I never take for granted that I have the best job in the world. Before I hit you with the final question, what have I missed? I'm sure you've got plenty of stories and things that you might have thought of in the last few weeks that we haven't touched oh, God, upon. I got tons. I feel like I haven't even scra scratched the surface because I was, you know, I always say I was there for such a long time and I saw so much happen. Yeah. You know, and, and we, I, you know, from getting to be there while we handed you know, platinum plaques for volume three and watching Killswitch Engage go gold or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just dealing with everything that we dealt with that happened personally or just, you know, seeing our artists grow and, and change. And, um, you know, I... Did the success ever bore anyone? Like you're handing out the platinum records, like, yeah, it's fucking, no, it. my of course God, it is. Gold. Of course it's going to go you platinum. you see a band that's going gold, you're like, how are we getting a platinum? I'm running to my desk every day to figure out how to get them to, how to help us sell more records. You know, it was, uh, you know, I worked very on the ground level with a lot of these artists and, and I loved it. And, you know, there, uh, some of my best memories were just hanging out with Machine Head after hours and hanging mm. out with Rob Flynn. I remember many years ago in Chicago, I went, I went out to see Machine Head on a Saturday night we did a bunch of interviews and press and you know after the show was over um i was staying with a friend in chicago and he did a radio show and he wasn't getting done until like 3 a.m and um i was uh, i don't i'm not a big drinker and i actually drank a little bit too much that day and uh that night and rob flynn probably made me a brown eye and uh i was like oh i'm gonna go hang out at the mcdonald's across the street it's because it was bus call which was 2 a.m i was like i'm gonna go hang at the mcdonald's across the street my friend's coming in an hour i'll be fine and rob flynn was like where's your ride? And I'm like, he's coming in a, in 45 minutes. He's like, D -d 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 -d. you're not going across the street to McDonald's. Get on the bus. And I was like, I, I'll be fine. He's like, get on the bus. And I was like, all right, fine. And you, the band will get fined by the bus driver for every, like, I think, is it five minutes or 10 minutes that they're over bus call? They need to leave at two o'clock. Roslyn's right. like, we'll wait. We'll wait till three o'clock till your ride gets here. I don't care if I'm getting fined on this guy. You're not going over there because we're never going to see you again. Because I was just, I, I wasn't in any shape to go do it by myself. And I looked back at that and I'm, I was like, man, I could tell my dad that story and he'd probably want to shake Rob Flynn's hand because he looked out for me. He was my friend. He was like my family. And I always tell Rob Flynn, like that story is like, you were a bro. You were looking out mm. for me. 
as family. And that's how I felt about so many of those bands that I work with and so many of my coworkers. You know, we all had fights and 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 bullshit and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, we were a family. And it mm-hmm. was I've never had a work family like that again, from Nelson Mitchell in the mailroom to Karen Dillett in International, you know, to Mike Gitter in AR, to to Monty Connor, to Jonas, to, to Ray Garcia and Michael Canner, all the people that were there, you know, Michelle Kerr, uh, you know, Sammy Westwood, all of them were, you know, it was family. It was it was a family. I can't find Nelson. I know he's on Facebook, but he hasn't Nelson responded. Mitchell is one of the, you know what? You could go back there and talk to Nelson about any kind of music, about the Roadrunner bands and beyond. He was he was just the best. He was he was just amazing. Apparently, he's, he he was instrumental in Jerry Cantrell getting signed. And Nelson was. Yeah, I think he went to a, a, a Jerry show that was in oh New York, God. and then he came in with it was with someone else going. You need to sign Jerry. Yeah, yeah. I also want to shout out Rich Perkins who worked in the. <clears throat> uh, I mean, you were talking to somebody about the intranet when I listened. I was like, oh, my God, I still honestly, the way the intranet was set up, I still use it as like the base of how I schedule interviews, like in my systems that I use, because the internet that we had was really groundbreaking at the time. It was super organized and super easy to work with. Everybody on on every level, Jeff Chenault and Sarah back in the creative department, Angela, who was our receptionist, you know, we were all we were all family. Yeah. Okay, let's hit you with the, the final one. Yes. Best day, best day and worst day at Roadrunner, and you can't say okay. the day you start and the day you left. Oh, and I would never say that boring answer. The, the day I started and the day I left, I can say that my worst day out there, and it will ne- it was my worst day of my career because it was just so painful. Mm-hmm. Was the day that Paul losing Paul Gray um, when I uh, when Paul passed away, um, I flew out to Iowa for the press conference, and I remember Corey Brennan was like, "Send Amy, just send her out here." And I was like, I went out as the company's representative and as the band's friend, not as their publicist. I was I was happy to do it, and mm-hmm. I cared about Paul, so it was really sad, you know, to 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 go through that. The the best day, um, I would say there was a couple of them. Uh, I would say that um, uh, uh, Slipknot selling out. Uh, Madison Square Garden on a whole, all hope is gone. All hope is gone. Going number one, um, that was just huge to be a part of, and yeah, yeah. And, and and that deep into their career, um, I would say watching Killswitch Engage. You know, people kind of write them off after Jesse because Jesse is a force of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, and and Killswitch evolved in the way they needed to evolve. But watching people kind of write them off, and then they came back and they became one of the most important bands of this generation. Yeah, um, just watching that and being a part of that, and like I said, watching them put those pegs in place with touring and having a managers that understood them and just go, we're going to put them out with Slayer, we're going to put them on Ozfest, we're going to put them on Warped Tour, we're going to put them on Taste of Chaos, we're going to put them with. And on. We're going to put them, you know, we're going to put them with, with my chemical romance. That was just a beautiful thing to watch that growth. So um, there was a lot of great days there. Just, you know, um, just so many of them, but um, I, I think those are some of my favorite memories there. Awesome. You know? And getting to work amazing records like The Blackening and and Snowcap Romance and The End of Heartache and Volume 3 in Iowa and all the, the great records that we, we were blessed to be a part of. Yeah, it's a special place. It was, it was, I, I love it. And, and it, it's still an amazing, amazing brand and an amazing company. And that'll never change. Nothing will ever, nothing will, you know, yeah, you have your memories like, oh my God, that sucked. But it, my, my love for Roadrunner is, is pure and it's fond. Everything about it. Case, I remember when Case's last day there, he came up to me and he said, hey, 
keep the metal going here. And I was like, no, this falls on me. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, it was hard seeing Monty not there anymore. It, it was just a different place at, at that time, but it's it's still going. And it's yeah. it's got a glorious history that nobody can ever take away. And it's continuing to just grow and evolve. Exactly. And I'm blessed and lucky to be a part of it. I feel like I hardly scratch the surface of anything. I have so many crazy things that I don't think I can talk about just because, you know, I should probably just let it go. But... <laughs>